Hello and welcome to a new episode of eWorklife, a podcast where we talk about productivity, well-being and work-life balance. We talk to scientists and others who can help us make the most of our technology to get our work done, to keep connected to others and to support our health and well-being. I'm Anna Cox, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at UCL in London and your host for this episode. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Kathy Stavach, a lecturer in the School of Computer Science and Informatics at Cardiff University. She has a keen interest in technology for health and safety. We talk about the role of random events in directing the course of her career, her knack for spotting new opportunities, including how a fun project to develop a device that helps martial arts students perfect punches led to a device to help stroke patients relearn upper limb movements. And why the best app for habit formation is the one that you stop using. But before that, let's listen to some top tips from our other guests about how we can use technology to survive the digital age. I'm Marta Cecchinato, a senior lecturer in HCI at Northumbria University. My top tip for using technology at work is to set digital boundaries. This can be separating how you use devices for work and personal reasons, or actively changing your online status on things like Teams and Slack to manage your availability to be interrupted. I'm Dave Cook, a researcher at UCL Anthropology. And my top tip for using technology to support your well-being is to do a daily guided meditation using an app on my non-work tablet. I like short, simple mindfulness meditations. Now to today's guest, Dr. Kathy Stavach is a lecturer in the School of Computer Science and Informatics at Cardiff University. Her research focuses on the use of ubiquitous technologies to support health and well-being, with a particular interest in how mobile devices, distributed systems and smart materials can be used to support healthy habits by leveraging people's environment and routines. So let's get straight to the conversation with Kathy. Hello, Kathy, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Yes, hello. Thanks for inviting me. So I wanted to uh, start talking to you about the beginning of your academic career and actually go as far back as when you were an undergraduate student. So you studied maths and computer science in Poland. Yes, although studying is probably a wrong word because I failed it twice. Okay, so tell me a bit (laughs) about that. Yeah, so that was interesting because I wanted to study computer science But there was one exam, and it was just maths exam for both courses. So, and you had to get more points of the the higher mark to get to um, computer science. So I ended up accidentally doing maths, which I didn't take seriously enough because I thought maths was easy. So (laughs) I failed. (laughs) And then the next year, I passed the exams again. And this time I had enough points to do computer science. But I figured, like, I failed maths. I'm going to show them, I'm going to do it. So I went to do the maths degree and I signed up for advanced levels of every single module, which was a very bad idea because it was very abstract. So I failed again. And I wanted to do it for the third time because, you know, third time lucky, but my parents didn't agree. 
So I just came to London for a break. And then I applied somewhere else to just do computer science. So what was it that had triggered your interest in computer science early on? Oh, it was, yeah, the programming stuff, just making computers work. That was really interesting. And I think that was reflected in like my career later on because I really wanted to code the stuff that's inside all the back end. But then as I was learning this... I kind of realized, like, hold on, what's on the outside, like the user-facing uh, features, that's more interesting, that has more impact. So I kind of switched to doing front-end um, as part of my degree. But then near the, my undergrad projects, I realized that actually you can do what, what super nice-looking front-end, but if it's not usable, no one's going to use it. So I got really interested in usability. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, while reading about all this, I kind of discovered HCI. But it all started, which is like, I want to program things because programming sounds cool. And so as part of kind of getting to know more about HCI, um, you went on to do a master's and and then a PhD. So back when you were first doing computer, studying computer science, did you have an academic career in mind? No, never. I didn't plan doing PhD until I read an ad and decided to apply. It was spontaneous. It was really completely random because I was, I was doing my master's and I think I was looking for examples of distinction thesis or something. So I went to the website and I noticed an ad for PhD positions and I thought I would check because I, I never thought about this. And I always thought like you have to be super smart to, be, to do a PhD. So I was really curious what the requirements were. And I read them and I was like, oh my God. It's like, <laughs> I match all the requirements. How is this possible? Because of that, it was like, okay, I'm going to apply and see what happens. And I have never planned this. I have no one in my family who ever done an academic career. Um, my mom was the first person to actually do the master's degree, although she started after me. So if I didn't fail my maths twice, I would have been the first person. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was completely random. But whilst you were doing this academic track, you also had interests outside of that um, and ended up working on on sort of like a little startup outside of your PhD, working with the fire service. So can you tell us a bit about that project? So again, this was pretty random because it started at the hackathon. It was, I think, up London hackathon in 2013. Um, and basically, I just went them randomly in the evening because it was advertised as a prototyping. Uh, and one of the companies who, want, who came there with a problem were, were the people from the Hertfordshire Fire Service. And they said they were looking for someone to help them with the sort of firemen dying in building fires. Because the problem is that current um, safety equipment is so good that they don't notice when it's too hot. Uh, so then the, the body overheats uh, and they can die because of that. So all Actually, the old suits, they used to have their ears outside. So when the ears would start burning, they would know it's too hot and they would go out. But we kind of, everything progressed and become more complex. Um, so yeah, so they, they, they described this problem at the hackathon. And I just banded up with a bunch of random people 
who were interested in this project. And one of them came to the hackathon with a bag full of Arduinos and uh, components. So that was Ross Atkins, um, really lovely chap. And we kind of sat down and we developed this uh, prototype that would measure the temperature and it would start vibrating after it crossed a specific threshold or whether it started uh, sort of going rapidly up. And we won the hackathon and then we got some funding to develop this and, and turn it into an actual project, an actual product. Um, so that was really interesting because I met those like, five random people at the hackathon and then we ended up running business together. It didn't end well, <laughs> but it was it was interesting while it lasted, let's say. <laughs> How do you mean it didn't end well? There was some conflict and and the, the startup died basically um but yeah the idea was lovely it's just we we didn't agree on on the plan so half of the team wanted to just develop the product and release it and sort of help fire, uh, firefighters but the other half they really wanted to turn it into bigger business and expand and just go to other fields and it was almost pushing the development of the specific device at, sort of at the back. Um, so, yeah, we, we just didn't agree. Was your role within that project, were you specifically looking at, like, the user experience side of it? Uh, yes, so I was the user experience, the human factors specialist on the project. So, um, for example, I spent one day on the firefighting training grounds um, where we look at the fire chamber and a bunch of other places where people actually train evacuations during uh, firefighting. I got into a fire truck. We, we, we kind of had a chance to try on some um, helmets to see how people get trained. Um, it was almost a bit like really rapid ethnography. I was just following them, taking pictures, um, taking notes, and then we used that to inform the actual form factor. So, and... Yeah, because we, we were trying to understand where the sensor should be, um, how sensitive the vibrations should be um, and things like that. So that experience, I suppose, you know, it, it didn't lead to you running that company long term. Did it kind of put you off working in industry or or was it just did you like stick to academia because you thought, no, actually, academia is definitely where I want to have my career? It's been a mix of both, I think, because I think one of the reasons why I sort of was happy to start the PhD was because I thought it would be more interesting, more flexible, I think, than the industry. So rather than working for, for the specific client and focusing on, on profits in academia, you can kind of do a bit more good. We tried to do this with the startup, but then because there was this focus on making more money, that I didn't find this appealing. I mean, I find money appealing because like, you need money to live. Uh, but it's kind of, I, I like the flexibility and the fact that in academia I can work on projects that may not necessarily be profitable, but they can do good. So like my research on behavior change and habit formation, the main co conclusion was that the best app for habit formation is the one you stop using eventually. And that kind of goes against of what I would have to do in probably in, in the industry. Tell us a bit more about that. What do you mean by the best app for developing a habit is the one that you stop using? That sounds totally counterintuitive. 
It does, it does. Uh, and I was really surprised when I actually found this out as, as part of my PhD. So the plan was to develop this app or a device or something that helps people develop healthy habits, uh, mostly in the context of medication uh, as part of my PhD, but in general, the principles are applicable everywhere. Um, but the problem is like when you're using an app to help you form a habit and the existing and when you're using one of the existing apps, they tend to give you reminders or you ask to track things and you have to log in and people in develops uh, reliance on the app. So they develop a habit of using the app, not necessarily the habit of doing whatever they wanted to do. And so when the app stops working or they get a new phone and or they just stop using the app for whatever reason, they're more likely to stop actually doing their healthy behavior because it hasn't been a habit itself, using the app was. Um, so ideally, the app should be like training wheels on the bike. It should be something that helps them start the habit and then it should go away. Because obviously, if you're using an app for habit formation for months, the app is not working. Because if it did work, you would have developed a habit and you wouldn't need it. So, so that's, that's the thinking behind this idea. So how long would someone ideally have to use an app like this in order to develop a habit? Oh, so that, that depends on how complex the, the actual behavior is. Um, so if you look at the literature, I think the, the average is about 66 days, uh, but then the actual length ranges between about 17 days to like whole year, depending on the complexity. Um, I always wanted to actually run a study to see how, how you can phase out an app to see how long... Uh, you need to use it. Um, they haven't got around to doing that yet. So, so that's that's still on, on the stack. You were saying that um, in your PhD research, you were really looking at this idea about healthy habits. And I think one theme that you kind of see through all the research you've done since then is like this focus on mental health and well-being. Um, and, and you've worked on some specific projects in the kind of mental health um, focus, um, the mental health space. So can you tell us a bit about some of the work you've done there? Sure. So the, the mental health project was uh, an interesting one because uh, it involved real patients receiving real uh, treatment. So it was really challenging and also so there was a lot of responsibility in this involved. So we were developing developing an online platform for delivering uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. So it is normally a face-to-face -face therapy. There are usually well, about 12 sessions, but in the UK, if, if you get six, then you, you're being lucky. Uh, so the plan was to see if we could do, provide a platform where it can be delivered online, uh, but also the one that it's not just you interacting with the therapist, but we were also wanted to integrate specific materials because CBT um, is very sort of practical type of therapy. There are lots of worksheets you're supposed to do between sessions. So, for example, when something upsetting happens, uh, you can fill in a thought record when you record like what happened, and then separately you record what you were thinking, 
and then separately record what you were feeling because the point is to teach people to distinguish between thoughts and feelings because they are in the same thing. Um, and there is evidence that when people engage with those worksheets, they, they get better quicker. But in the face-to-face -face therapy, people just hardly ever do that because you get the worksheets on paper and people misplace them. So we, we interviewed therapists and, and they said that usually just people don't do it. Um, or they just do it at the last moment, like final homework just before the therapy starts. Um, so they, they don't get benefits of that. So the platform we were developing uh, was supposed to have this at the center. So both therapists and the client would, uh, yeah, because therapists call them clients. So we had to be clear about which words we were using, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, yeah, so they were all both supposed to log into the system at the same time and they could open a worksheet and they could do it uh, together, fill it in together. What was interesting and unique about the system was also the fact that we focused on uh, instant messaging. So there was no video, there was no audio, and the therapist and client uh, were, were typing to each other. And the rationale for that was that previous research on online therapy showed that this is beneficial because it forces people to think clearly about the, what they were trying to say uh, and reflect on the answers. And also when they're waiting for the therapist to write, it also gives them a bit of space to think about it. But all that research was done about like 10 years ago and things that were seen as beneficial turned out to be really tricky when we were running the study. Because now everyone is used to, when you have instant messaging, you can see the other person typing. And we didn't have the typing indicator in our early um, prototype for testing because there were, there were more sort of pressing uh, features. It was sort of falling down on the list of priorities. And everyone complained about this. So everyone was really confused. So they didn't know if the therapist was doing this on purpose. So there was the silence which actually turned out to be good because they thought, okay, the therapist wants us to, to think, so I will just think about what they said. Um, and it sort of showed the new, new possibilities of this sort of the typing interaction when you don't really know if the other person is typing. Uh, we did add it eventually, and the, the randomized control trial is running now. Um, so yeah, it will be interesting to see if, if there's a difference. But yeah, the point of the whole system was to introduce this new integrated uh, system for delivering therapy. Um, and we will see how well it works after the, the trial ends. These projects kind of sound similar in some ways, right? So that, so you've got the, the mental health focus, um, you've got um, sort of like digital health, you know, thinking about helping people to remember to take medications. Um, and then you've got sort of like health and safety, if we think about the working with the firefighters. So is that something that you kind of consciously thought about in terms of this is an important thread for you in your work? I noticed it at one point, and I think it's, it started organically. It wasn't planned. Um, and I guess most of the things I do aren't really planned like randomly applying for a PhD. Um, but then I think once I notice I am doing digital health research, this is something I want to do. Um, 
I am now trying to make a conscious decision when I'm starting new projects to do something that can help people to support the health, support the well-being. Um, so, for example, the recent project uh, we got funding for a couple of months ago uh, is developing a rehabilitation device for people who survive stroke. Um, and it's mostly it's supposed to be a wearable device that helps you practice movements of your arm. So, for example, to help people to practice how they eat or how they lift the cup, because this is something they uh, they need to do. But this started as a punching project, which I did a few years ago. So I had an intern who developed a wearable device for training for martial arts training, and that. It was able, it's still able to recognize like five different types of choikwando punches. And it was a really fun thing. It's just a wearable thing. So you have this, this clunky 3D printed box you wear on your wrist and it had an accelerometer and a gyroscope inside. Um, and then it was this long cable that ran along your arm and down your back because we didn't have time to make it wireless. Um, and basically, you had one person holding a punch bags, and then you you just punch things while wearing this prototype. And it could recognize five different punches. So, for example, we could give you a combination of specific moves to to execute, and then you would do it, and this this system would tell you if you've done them correctly. Um, it had quite good accuracy. It was really we were really surprising. Uh, but then it kind of ended at that because it was a it was an internship project, but that was two three years ago. But since then I've been thinking like how can we turn it into something useful? Um, and last year I met uh, Professor Valerie Sparks from medical school at Cardiff, who specializes in rehabilitation, and we started chatting, and the general conclusion was that if this simple device can recognize punches, which is simple movement when your hand goes up or it can go sideways and it can recognize what it is, it could technically recognize similar movements that are used in upper limb rehabilitation. So we, we wrote a small proposal. We're collaborating on this um, with researchers from Bangladesh because we're trying to make it like really affordable, really simple system. Uh, for that, um, and we will see how this goes. But again, started as a as a random punching project, and, but now we're going towards the sort of the health and well being support. So exciting! So, so this idea of like something starts as kind of in a random way, and because you're interested, or there's something about it that grabs your attention. And then you seem to be really good at at finding a way to turn these ideas into something that's going to be really useful for other people. Um, and it, it sounds like this drive to be helpful is really important to you. It is, yeah. I and I I don't know where it comes from, but I like doing things that other might find useful. And it, is it therefore important to you that your I suppose your work has sort of like some real world impact? Yes, mostly, because the random projects don't necessarily have it. So, for example, I, I, I supervised a student who built a smelly bot, which is this box you keep on your desk that releases a smell to make you take breaks from the computer. 
but the the smell of fresh grass um, he ordered of the internet um, went bad. So it was literally a smelly, stinky boat. And <laughs> but it did work because the people, so the participants who had smelly boat took the longer breaks and more frequent breaks from the computer than the participants who had a smelly boat with, that released the smell of chocolate. So was this because they wanted to get away from the nasty smell? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know where I could go next with this idea. So this is like the, the punching project. It kind of sits at the back until... Um, I figure out how I could use nasty interactions to, <laughs> to mess up with people for good. How do you um, kind of turn these little things into future opportunities or future projects? Where does that inspiration come from? Mostly it's from talking to people about those projects. So, for example, when I was in Bristol... Every day, three, four times a, week, a day, we would go to have tea together. So there would be one person saying, hey, who wants tea? We want tea. And there would be two, three, four of us taking tea and we would talk about random things. And those would be the chats when I would mention some of like the student, funny student project or funny thing I read about or interesting about. And we would do those mini brainstorms, um, which weren't... Which weren't always serious there were just chats about this and it would be two minutes if we just went to get tea and come back it could be 15 minutes chat um but that's that's something i i use to bounce my ideas off people or to contribute to their ideas and then i think yeah that's i think that's the magical ingredient so that kind of informal interaction like those sort of opportunities to sit and chat to colleagues are the kind of thing that lots of people have been talking about as being something that they've missed during the pandemic when everybody's been working at home so have you found ways in which to kind of keep that going for yourself so i have whatsapp chat with some colleagues um where I just throw random thoughts or they throw random thoughts at me. Um, I have a group chat on Teams with new colleagues from Cardiff because I, I joined last year. Um, and that was another thing that actually made those um, random conversations really difficult because my first day at new work uh, was the first day of the first lockdown. So it's been over a year. I still haven't been on campus. I haven't met anyone in person. Um, so having those random chats is it's difficult, but I, I have a group chat with a couple of, of colleagues and we, we just throw ideas at each other. So that's been really helpful. So how? tell us a bit more about that experience of starting a new job during the pandemic, because there aren't many people who will have had that kind of experience. So like, have there been things that have been surprisingly easy or good or things that have been really difficult that you've had to contend with? So I think that's been easy for me because um, I'm used to having friends or knowing people just online. So for example, 
I used to be part of a community in Poland when we were publishing an online magazine about fantasy and sci-fi. And there were friends, there were people I'm still friends with 20 years later who I have never met in person. And instead of communicating by instant messaging, uh, it's something that I'm used to. Uh, since coming to the UK in 2004, um, I, I've been chatting with people from, from like friends who stayed back there and it's been easy. Uh, I don't like phone calls so talking via instant messaging is like a default for me and using Teams to chat with new people at work has been easy and yeah so that's that's been easy. What's been difficult I think has been finding out things that aren't written anywhere. Because like when you sit in an office, you can hear people say something and talk about something like um, who's the person to talk to about X or who knows about something else. And you kind of get a sense of where to go and whom to speak when you when you have a question about something. But when you're just doing this online, you have a few people you can message. You can talk to your line manager. You can talk to your like, few colleagues from your secret chatting group. Uh, but then they may not know the answer. And I like to be the person who knows stuff so that people can ask me questions because I, I, I like to know things, I'm curious. And then suddenly I can do that because I don't know who to ask and where to go to find that information. So that's been, that's been a bit challenging. Although, yeah, so I like, I like having coffee with new, with new colleagues just to, to learn what they're doing. And doing this online hasn't been that fun it still works but it's a bit more awkward because i know when you meet someone for the first time for coffee and you go to a coffee shop and you don't really know what to talk about and how to start the conversation you can talk about random things you see so there might be an interesting dog outside for example so so suddenly you remember about this and you can show them the picture of the random dog you saw uh, but online you just it feels a bit more formal it almost feels that if you're doing a Zoom call, you need to have an agenda. While if you're going for friendly coffee with someone, you can just spend an hour and actually don't talk about work at all. And that's fine. But other than that, yeah, it's been it's been fine. It's been really interesting. It sounds like you've tried having, um, you know, just kind of replicating those coffee shop experiences online. Like, did you purposefully seek out people to let's sit, in our remote workspaces at home and and have a coffee together? So I tried this at the beginning because I figured that at least I should get to know the people from my research group just because it's, it's fair. I mean, we have our weekly meetings anyway, but I thought it would have been useful. Um, so I tried that. And then with some of them, we, we just keep talking on the chat with others. It just didn't, well, didn't work I mean, it, it works because I know what they do, so they know what I do and we can chat, but it hasn't turned into friendship forever. But I think it, it stopped at that because then all the other conversations I had with people were mostly motivated by, okay, let's see if we can do a project together. So they become suddenly more formal, more directed. So that's how I contacted Valerie, for example, to talk about the, the rehabilitation project. That's how I contacted the people from, from Bangladesh to see, like, okay, would you be interested in doing this with us? So there's been less random chats, like, hey, let's have a coffee. 
that, that hasn't really happened. Um, I am a member of the HCI Women Slack group, and there is one channel there where you get paired up with random people for random coffee. So basically every Monday it lists pairs of people. Uh, so I tried doing this for a few weeks uh, before the term started. And it was fun when I was paired up with people I already knew. Uh, but the two times I got paired up with sometime, some, someone completely different, um, it was a bit awkward at the beginning because you just don't know, you know nothing about them. I mean, you couldn't look them up online, but I guess that's a bit different. But I guess that's the kind of thing where maybe uh, if you met up with them again, it would be, you'd expect it might be easier. Yeah, probably. But I think doing this follow-up call on the next calls, that's a bit more awkward online for some reason. I don't know why. Because if, if you meet with someone for coffee in person and then you see them on the corridor, for example, you can say, hey, let's, let's have a coffee. Or you meet them at the conference. Like, hey, remember, we talked about let's have a coffee. But I find it a bit more awkward to email someone and say, hey, let's have another coffee after that awkward conversation <laughs> we had. <laughs> But overall, it sounds like you found it um, reasonably straightforward to settle into this new job, even though you haven't been in the office. Yes, it's been surprisingly easy. Uh, I was worried about how the teaching would work online only as well, but that's been surprisingly okay without many major disasters, apart from one time when I delivered a two-hour session while showing slides just to myself because I forgot to share my screen. And no one told you? No one told me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as we get towards the end of uh, our chat, I want to kind of come back to thinking about your um, your research and the, the projects you've done, which have all had this sort of like theme about enhancing people's life in some way and often around helping people to manage some aspect of their health and I wondered how you go about using technology to help yourself to be healthy so do are there things that you've taken from your research that you've implemented in your own life so I've been I've been using my research and habits to try and make myself do healthy things. Um, so, for example, when I wanted to start running a bit more, instead of using an app to, to track it and make sure like I run three days a week, um, I, I don't use any reminders or anything. I just decided to have this routine when I wake up, eat a banana and I go for a run at least twice a week. It doesn't matter which day. I've been failing at this some, some weeks, but in the other weeks it worked. And after six or seven months, it's been long. Uh, I kind of feel like I have to go running at least once a week. And it has to be this specific routine. So I wake up, eat my banana, or I eat something bigger if it's a longer run. And then I go for a run. I tried running at different times of day, but because it's it doesn't fit into my routine, it just happens once and then never happens again. So this idea of having the contextual cues and having the specific routine that I talk about a lot in my research 
that's been really crucial because it helped me find the right spots. Um, another thing from my research was the fact that it takes trial and error to find the right routines and the right cues, which was nice to know because when my routines weren't working for me rather than discourage me, I would think like, okay, so this one isn't working, which and it's completely fine, so let's try something else. So tell us a bit, what do you mean by contextual cues in this situation? So basically, when you're trying to start a new habit, it is the environment that's the best um, sort of trigger to action. So if you do something in the same place or at the same time or in between the same other actions you're doing, all those other things can start to trigger your behavior. So they are almost like a reminder and as a, as a prompt to action. So, for example, if you always wake up, brush your teeth, eat a banana every day, then you can decide that I will do this new thing right after eating the banana. So that's going to be your, your So it becomes kind of part of a routine or a chain of events that you just practice on a daily basis. And it doesn't have to be exactly on a daily basis. It's just every time this whole sort of the same, it's not the ritual, but it's sort of the same sequence is repeated. It's it's a nice prompt to, to, to do the, the healthy behavior. You know, that, that's certainly something that you've looked at in your research, but doesn't, um, doesn't require any technology, I guess. So... I know, that's the best thing. <laughs> And I suppose that kind of brings us back to where we were, we were talking at the beginning of this conversation about um, how technology can end up being redundant in these situations or you, you want it to, you might use it as a support for creating one of these routines, but then the sort of ultimate aim is that you're not using it. Yeah, pretty much. So I, I sometimes set up reminders when I want to, do something, but the reminders are usually for things that are one-off. If I want to start a new thing, I will be doing regularly. I may use technology as a just to check on me, as a reminder that I've done it, rather than something to tell me to do it. The, the goal, at least for me, is to try and do those things without relying on technology. And is that something, like is there, is there a reason behind that? like a, a purposeful aim to try and do it without technology? Um, mostly because I know that if I'll be responding to technology, I will learn to respond to technology. And then when I don't have my phone with me one day, I will probably forget to do the thing. Um, and also I'm just trying to use technology less, basically. Although that's not conscious <laughs> decision when it comes to sort of exercise. So... How do you mean you're trying to use it less? Oh, be because technically, if, if it continues the way it does, my, my phone will sort of grow into my hand. So I am trying to learn not to have it with me. And if I rely on reminders and I don't have a phone in my phone, that in my room, then, yeah, that's, that's probably a bad idea. All right, Kathy, thanks for a really interesting discussion today. Yes, thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks so much to Dr. Kathy Stavach. You can find her on Twitter at Falkawata. You can find a link to her website and access to the show notes for this episode on eworklife.co.uk, where you'll also find links to our other episodes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. 
You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. And we'd love it if you can give us a five star review. It really helps other people to find us. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Anna Cox underscore. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. And you can also leave us a star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Claire Casson. This episode was sponsored by the EPSRC Get A Move On Network Plus. Music by scottholmesmusic.com. E-Work Life, powered by UCL Minds.